Hi, and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church who now meet each week in Hollywood Adventist on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness in Los Angeles. In-person church life, as with the rest of life, it's going to take a while to find its shape again post-Covid, and slowly and surely is going to be our mantra for a while. All these podcasts are taken for the time being from our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises. You can live stream them or watch the videos later on bread.church if that's more your thing. How to Return is the theme of the current series. We hope it serves you well. Um, So anyway, uh, just a little um, caveat to what I'm about to say. Um, If you're new, you're visiting us today, could you just um, ignore everything I'm about to say? It doesn't apply to you. I'm talking about money. Uh, You can just let it wash over you, get on Instagram, you know, do things that you, you know, shopping lists, those sorts of things that you need time to do, because this isn't for you. But if you're home team, this is for you. Listen up. Good. Great. Uh, so anyway, last week Hannah talked um, about money in uh, this kind of two-week miniseries, and this is the second of those two weeks. Uh, but it's not actually just about money. Uh, it's also about where we find ourselves as a church, which may be very exciting to people if you're uh, checking us out, if you're visiting. It's great to have you uh, with us. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about six weeks in, having started meeting in person again, where we are what we're thinking for the next uh, few months and years and those sorts of things at the end. But first, a bit about money. So, as Hannah mentioned last week, Jesus talked about money more than any other subject apart from the kingdom of God. And there is a reason for that. It's because money is extremely powerful. It can become a bit like an all-demanding God for us. He personifies it like filthy lucre. It's uh, this godlike figure called mammon. Such is the power of money to overtake us. And it's only when we come to terms with the fact that there is this dark side to money that we can actually acknowledge it for what it is, step out of its control, and use it as it's supposed to be used. Now, on one level, money would be such an easier subject for us to grapple with and to talk about if that was the only part of it that that existed, the dark side of it. If that was the only side that money represented, then we could just get away from it, ignore it, give it away as soon as we got it, and basically treat it like anything else that might enslave us, like the music of Drake or the sport of golf, something to avoid at all costs, lest we are infected with its disease. But 
God bless you, Drake. Uh, but anyway, but to do this with money, we have failed to take seriously a whole other side of money that the Bible describes. It does not just have a dark side. It also has a beautiful light one. And part of Christianity and part of being a Christian who is mature involves holding together both of those sides, both sometimes paradoxical sides. It's neither all bad, neither is it all good. So having focused mainly on the negative side last week, this week, joy unbounding, let's consider the positive side. On the light side of things in the biblical witness, wealth is not just seen as the generous and abundant gift of our loving God, Money can, ha- can perhaps more startlingly be a means by which we actually draw closer and enhance our relationship with God. In the Old Testament, the Garden of Eden is this sort of lush, lavish abundance of a place where everything is declared to be good, not just passable, not just good enough, but excellent, wonderful, bountiful, rich in all its ways. This is the gift of God to the world. And he continues to lavish his abundance on people throughout the narrative of the Old Testament. God tells Abraham that he will make his name great and prosper him. He is very rich in cattle, lucky Abraham, and very rich in silver and gold too. And Isaac, Job, and probably most famously King Solomon, amongst many others, are all extremely wealthy, all abundantly gifted by God. Does this mean, therefore, that wealth is a sign of God's favor, and therefore, by implication, poverty is a sign of his displeasure? No, certainly not. It's only possible, actually, to hold this position if you ignore most of the teaching of the New Testament on money. Jesus' acute warnings about the destructive potential of money, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom, which by implication makes it easier for the poor, and most notably, the example of Jesus. Surely, no one has been more blessed by God than the Son of God, Jesus, in whom God was happy to have his whole fullness dwell. And yet, it is this man, this Jesus, who gives up all the riches of heaven to be born in a stable amongst some animals and live a life of poverty. So, no, it does not mean that wealth is a sign of God's favor. But what it does mean is that material wealth and material things are neither antithetical to nor inconsequential for the spiritual life. In fact, they are intimately and positively related to it. So, if you happen to be wealthy, and let's be honest with each other, for one moment. Most of us can pull out a phone, put some things into it. I, <laughs> I don't know what that means. Uh, pull up an app, um, summon someone in the car that you've never met before to drive from wherever they are to just outside here, and then get in that car and get that person to drive you somewhere. And by, able, by means of being able to do this, it shows that we are, in global terms, very wealthy, right? So if you happen to be wealthy by whatever yardstick you want to use, don't feel guilty about being so. Don't feel like you should try not to be, or worse, that God doesn't want you to be. 
Because in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, in fact, there is a positive picture of wealth and money. There is, of course, more of the dark side in the New Testament. But money and wealth are nevertheless still seen as a way not only of expressing love to other people, but also of enhancing our relationship with God. The wise men brought their considerable wealth to Jesus at his birth as this extravagant act of worship. It is when Zacchaeus agrees to pay back, not just what he is morally or spiritually obliged to pay back, but a whole, month, a whole bunch more of the money that he's stolen, that Jesus declares salvation has come to this house. And Mary Magdalene, Joseph Arimathea, Nicodemus, and countless other people in the New Testament all use their wealth generously in service of Jesus and his kingdom. Importantly, Jesus commands all of us to pray for daily bread. And in doing so, he is bringing our need for material provision into the spiritual realm. So material things are not to be despised. In fact, they are part of the true experience of human spirituality here on earth. In our um, Alpha group on Wednesday, the subject was prayer, and we were talking about prayer. And in the discussion time, a number of people were all kind of agreeing, find it very difficult, this idea that we should pray for ourselves, when if you look at all the things going on in the world right now, how can we pray for ourselves when people are in much more dire need of help than ourselves? And it's a fair enough point. Um, however, leaving aside that that makes us slightly pious, doesn't it? And what the world probably doesn't need is more piety from Christians. The point being, Jesus actually commands us to pray for our needs. And don't we actually need stuff? I certainly do. I am not okay just by myself. It's why I'm a Christian. And can I say, looking at you, you guys really need stuff too. So, let us pray following Jesus' commands, because as we pray for ourselves, he is the God who we need him to be, who he promises to be, the God who provides out of his bounty for us all. And this really is the central teaching of the light side of money in the Bible. It is all provided for by God. All of it. Everything we have is created by God to bless us and this world. And often it comes to us despite, not as a result, of our hard work. The rural communities knew this well in Israel. They knew that if, it, if the sun shone at the right time and if the rains rained at the right time, they would have a bountiful harvest, irrespective of how hard they had worked or not worked. And I'm sure some of you can relate to the same thing. If you've tried to get a job, if you've tried to get some work, if you've gone to an audition, if you've tried to sort out a piece of business where you have done everything possible and you are easily the best candidate, only to find that it is given to someone else. But then, out of nowhere, something comes to you that you weren't expecting that's even better. You will know that God can provide in ways totally beyond our involvement in any of the process. This week, and this is slightly a trite story, so I'm uh, aware of how it might sound. 
But we, um, we found a couple of weeks ago that our air conditioner has broken. How annoying. Uh, it's on the roof. It's difficult to replace. We basically didn't have the money for it. We also knew that we were about to get a bill from our contractor um, because we'd been doing a kind of remodel that was um, kind of a, a big bill, and we didn't want the bill, but it was our final bill. Anyway, I was praying because I, like, I don't know how we're going to pay for this thing. God, you're just going to have to do something extraordinary. And I went to church expecting something to happen that was extraordinary because that's the God I believe in. Nothing happened. It's probably on you guys. Anyway, the following week, our contractor, I said, can you just send us the final bill because I'm just trying to work out what we need. Our contractor said, basically, I know it's been a really rough time. This whole year has been really difficult. The project's gone on over and over again. It's just got too, too long. So um, do you know what? Let's just call it quits. It was miles more than the, the, um, than the air conditioner is going to um, cost. Isn't that amazing? That's God's answer to prayer. That's what I believe. It could be a coincidence. I'm not sure. God cares deeply for us, his children, and he provides all our needs in bountiful ways. So firstly, God provides it all. Secondly, closely linked to it, God owns it all. There is hardly anything clearer in the Bible than the idea that the whole world and everything in it is the Lord's. Now, we as Western individualistic types, particularly growing up in the culture that we may have grown up in here, find this very, very difficult, do we not? After all, the shoes on my feet, I bought it. The clothes I'm wearing, I bought it. The rock, I'm rocking, I bought it because I depend on me. Thank you very much. In the UK, there is a saying that an Englishman's house is his castle. The same sentiment can probably be applied to most Western nations. We work hard enough, don't we, to earn enough to buy our house, and then it becomes ours, our castle, our security, our defense against all the world might throw at us. It's ours, and no one's going to take it from us. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, this is just not the biblical view of how the world works. And so it would actually do us quite well to shake it off because it will suck us into the dark, controlling side of money that Jesus is so concerned that we don't get sucked into. Instead, being aware that all of it, everything we see around us is God's, actually frees us. It frees us from all the anxiety about money and possessions. John Wesley, the Methodist preacher, Hannah mentioned him last week, was informed at one point of the terrible news that his house had burnt down. And John Wesley, being told this news, exclaimed this, Well, the Lord's house has burnt down. Wonderful. One less responsibility for me. Now, leaving aside just how annoying that probably made John Wesley be as a person to be around, the lesson still rings true. If we want to be free, let us accept how things actually are rather than how we might want them to be from time to time. 
God owns it all. And he provides it all. So bearing in mind all of this, which has been a long, long introduction, let us listen to some more of Jesus' teaching on money. This is Matthew 6, starting at verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So giving is not for show. And it needs to be treated carefully. The potential to find reasons not to do it is so strong that it's as if we need to not let our left hand know what our right hand is doing, lest we find very convincing reasons not to do it at all. And most importantly, verse 2, it does not say if, it says when. I would love it to say if, but it says when. It does not say if you give to the needy, it says when you give to the needy. It does not say if you suddenly have a massive windfall of cash and you decide to give some of it away to the needy, it says when you give to the needy. It does not say that if you're moved by a brilliant talk by Ed Flint at Bread Church and then you decide to give to the needy, it says when you give to the needy. So annoying, isn't it? Jesus is unequivocal in his expectation. Everyone's going to be giving to the needy. Does that mean you have to? Absolutely not. You do not have to do anything in God's kingdom. Do you know what? Jesus will still think you are the best. He will still think you are better than everyone else. You are his favorite. A friend of mine always jokes about getting a t-shirt that on it says, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. We should all get that. Do you know what? Some people can't wear it. Some people find that difficult to believe. Let me tell you, the story of the Bible says that is entirely true. So you don't need to do anything. He will still think you are extraordinary. He will tell people about you, about how brilliant you are. Such is the grace of God. But why just stay there? Why not become even greater? And the reason Jesus expects us to give is twofold. Firstly, because it's good for us. And secondly, because it's good for the world. We are so closely connected to our money, to the money that we have, that it's almost like it is part of who we are. It's why we are so obsessed with what people are worth why there is a Forbes billions list and we look at it and we're interested to see who's moved up and down. It's why we're so obsessed with what kind of car people drive or what house they live in or what sneakers that preacher wears. It's because we find it difficult to separate who people are from the money they have. I will let you into a little secret. You will never have done this, but I am 
mature enough to admit it. Sometimes I have Googled celebrities' houses. You've never done this. I have. Sometimes I've Googled their houses and then looked them up on Redfin afterwards. You've never done this? Just me. And often, when I've Googled their houses, I have passed judgment on their interior design. You have never done this, I have done this. Sometimes I've gone, you have all the money in the world and that's your sofa. Ugh. And sometimes I've gone, you've got all the money in the world and actually my appreciation of your interior design has just gone through the roof. Look at that, it's brilliant. In this fallen world that I live in but you don't, it's virtually impossible to separate who we are from the money we have. It's virtually impossible to separate other people from who they are with the money they have. It's like it's part of our personality. Carl Menninger was a leading psychotherapist, psychiatrist, uh, for 50 years from the last century. And he told the story of one wealthy patient who had more money than he knew what to do with. And Menninger asked him one day, so what are you going to do with all that money? And the patient replied, just worry about it, I suppose. So Menninger asked, well, do you get pleasure from worrying about it? And the patient replied, no, but I get such great terror when I think of giving some of it to someone. The terror is real. Because when we let go of money, we are giving part of ourselves away. And that can be very scary. It is our security. But it is precisely why it is therefore so important for us to do. Because when we give money away, we are giving a little bit more of our egocentric selves away, our false security, we are displaying actual real faith. And as we often say here, faith is the magic with God. He loves faith. And when we give money away, we are giving ourselves. We are not just singing about giving ourselves away. We are actually giving ourselves away. And in doing that, it's how we draw close to him. And he draws close to us. We feel his love and his pleasure. We are freed. If you talk to anyone who has mastered generosity, whether they are rich or poor, they will tell you exactly the same thing. In giving away, in being generous, we are reflecting what God's like, and we draw close to him because another barrier is removed. Last week, in a little town called Cluiston in Florida, a high school senior called Julian Avalo was involved in a traffic accident as he was driving back from school and he was killed. It was the day before their graduation. So the graduation took place on Thursday and obviously tinged with huge amounts of grief and sorrow. Now each year at this school, the local Jeep dealership donates a prize for the raffle for students who have excelled. It's either a Jeep or $10,000 in cash. Now, the girl who won the raffle was a girl called Annette Blanco. And she chose on Thursday, at the end of this graduation, to take the cash. But as she was going up to get the cash, 
she said that she just had in her heart that she wanted to help. So she gave half of the money directly to Julian's family who were grieving. Now, she was in need. This is not a rich girl. She had got a place in college. She needed the money for college. Her teacher was so touched by this that on the Sunday, she went to her church and she told the story of what this girl, Annette, had done. Straight away, someone gave her $1,000 to give to this girl, Annette. Over the next few days, 7,000, over $7,000 was donated. And when she gave it to Annette, the both of them just cried and cried. The teacher, a woman called Crystal Drake, said, I know that she had a need too, and it was what made it extra special to me. But what I found was other people gave because she gave. It was like a domino effect. Other people gave because she gave. This is the kingdom of God. It's why it moves us. It's why our spirits go, I like that. I feel tearful. I feel joyful. I feel moved because... This is how the world was set up by a bountiful God who gives and gives and gives. And as we give, other people give. So it's good for us and it's good for our world. As Jesus acknowledges, for the very fact that there are needy amongst us, clearly the world is not functioning as it was intentionally supposed to back in the days of Eden. Everyone does not have more than they need. Many don't even have what they need. And throughout the biblical narrative, God's call to his people is to give to alleviate suffering, to give so that we can rectify what is wrong. So, given that, can we just all agree to reject any version of of this idea that God helps those who help themselves or everyone just needs to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Now, of course, hard work is very important. It is a biblical concept. However, in general, Jesus is very unconcerned with why people are suffering. He's just concerned with getting them out of suffering as quickly as possible. In fact, at one point, people ask Jesus, is this person like this because of the sins of their parents, the sins of uh, their own sins, etc., etc.? And Jesus says, uh, it doesn't matter, I'm just going to heal them. When we acknowledge God's ownership of everything, we start changing the questions we ask about giving, we stop asking how much of my money should I give away, and we start asking instead how much of God's money should I keep for myself. This is fundamental. Finally, just to end this bit on money, verse 4, we will receive a reward. Please can you just hear me on this? This does not mean that if we give money, God will bless us with riches and miracles or anything else that we most want. God is not a slot machine. He's not some benign uncle who just wants to spoil his children. He cares about us much, much more than that. The reward is him. It's more of him, more valuable than anything this world has to offer. We give 
to not to receive a reward. We give for all the reasons that I've tried to um, explain. Because it's good for us, it's good for our world, it's a reflection of what we believe that it's all his anyway. But as we do it, we get more of him. So our prayer is that bread, the community here, becomes and continues to grow in generosity. That we are generous with everything, all the time. Not really asking any questions, just giving it away. I always say, it's good now and again to be the first person at the bar. Be the first person at the bar, not waiting for someone else to get their credit card out, but just getting your credit card out. Just go quickly, fast. Be keen to be ridiculously generous from time to time. Also be planned, but be generous. And with that in mind, let me just tell you where we are as a church. As many of you know, we are kind of relatively young. We, um, Hannah and I moved out here with our family from London in 2000, end of 2016. And we sort of started meeting with a handful of people in our living room. And we moved in 2018 to Los Feliz, uh, the end of 2018. And then we had a really great kind of year and a bit of just being a church and growing and becoming established. And then there was a global pandemic. Thanks for that. And it's been difficult since then. But to be honest, this whole thing has been kind of par for the course. It's been a bit up and down, bit start, stop. This is our sixth service back in person. Sixth service back in person. And what it's felt like uh, for Hannah and, and I is really we are launching again. We're starting again. Um, which is, there's an element of PTSD about that. I thought we'd done that. But we are starting again. And so what we are asking is, is this your church? Now, as we often say, church is like breakfast cereal. You just choose one you like. It doesn't need to be difficult. Just choose one you like. Some people like Cheerios. Some people like Weetabix. Some people like kind of um, brand name cornflakes. Don't go there. But just choose one you like. But having chosen it, commit to it. It doesn't have to be this one. There are lots of very good churches around. Once you've got one, give yourself to it. It will do you the world of good. At the end of 2020, we were still in lockdown, and it wasn't looking like anything was um, changing anytime soon. And I'll give, I'll give you an insight into Hannah and my soul. We were going, this has been rough. Are we supposed to carry on doing this? That was the question we were asking God. And we were saying, just show us whether we're supposed to be doing this. And what um, happened over the next uh, month or so was such an extraordinary provision, not just um, financially, but definitely financially, that it was sort of unequivocal, it was unanswerable that we should carry on. Um, that this is actually, that God was in it, and he was saying, get back build, build, build. So we decided as soon as we could to rent this building, we decided to open up services, and I think it's been a very good idea to do that. But we are starting again. And so what we're asking is for people to be part of the team, to be part of the team to grow this church. And what you are part of is a church that values various things. And I will finish with this. 
we value intimacy and authenticity in worship. Someone um, a while back sent me a meme saying something like, um, pastor gets up to say what a great worship set that was when everyone knows it was a terrible worship set. But fortunately, I get to say that was a great worship set, wasn't it? Now, worship for us is not a show. It is also not something that we get through so that we can listen to the talk. Worship is in and of itself central to our experience as people of God. It is about acknowledging the living God, the language of faith, and it is about him meeting with us, us being intimate with him, close to him. And we value intelligent, grace-filled, culturally relevant communications of the gospel. Do you know that this year is the first year on record where, for the first time, more Americans are not going to church than are going to church? It's been a steady decline over a number of years. This year, finally tipped over. It's going to carry on, as far as anyone can tell, going in the same direction. And overwhelmingly, it is young people, a lot like yourselves, no longer going to church. And do you know the reasons they give for not going to church? It's things like this. In their minds, church has aligned to or is associated with anti-scientific intolerance, greed, judgmentalism, misogyny, nationalism, hate, manipulation, and racism. What a lovely list. Now, I'm not going to get into politics here. I'm genuinely not that interested. Really not. But I am very, very, very concerned when the truth of Jesus' unconditional grace and the power of his spirit and the person of his spirit is hidden from view from anyone. I get quite angry about that, I'll be honest. That list has got nothing to do with the Jesus of the Gospels. So we have a problem, and we have very hard work to do to dispel all that deathly stench of religious superiority, all that deathly stench of things that have got nothing to do with Jesus and his grace, so that people can meet him once more, so that you and your friends, you know, the ones who have said they never want to go back to church ever again or can't think of why anyone would want to go to church, so that they can hear the real Jesus once more and meet his spirit. And we value care for the poor and justice for the oppressed. Now, Jesus is not party political. And here's a thought. Should we just try and ditch all the demonization and party politics for a bit? Just, you know, let's just see if it works. Because it doesn't seem to be working. Why don't we just ditch it? Jesus is not party political. But he is very political. And his kingdom is very political. His kingdom says, the last are first and the first are last. No political party has ever said that. His kingdom says everyone is welcome. His kingdom says all barriers of division are destroyed, not by good arguments, but by a death on a cross. His kingdom says everyone sits down as equals and justice flows like a river. No one is in need, and everyone is included. What the world needs is not great politics. What the world needs is the kingdom of the living God. 
where we act justly, where we love mercy, and where we walk humbly with our God, where we fight for those who have least, the most downtrodden. It is the story of the Bible. It is the story of God's people. And we value community. As we've said before, LA is a very lonely place. And the picture that is there throughout the New Testament of what God's people is like is often described as a family. People need family, not least because some people's biological families have been so terrible. Bread is a family. It is a home for orphans. So let us create a sense of community here. Can I just say this? On Saturday, we have got our Alpha Day away in Malibu. Now, I would strongly like to um, force all of you to come to that <laughs> because it's fundamental to what we're doing. Ben is going to lead worship. We're going to be together. We're going to hear some great teaching from me on who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. We're going to um, pray for one another, and we're going to be a family together. This is fundamental. So can I just say to you, come. It doesn't matter if you've done Alpha. It doesn't matter if this is the first time of any um, kind of interaction with this church at all. You just walk through the doors. Come, invite yourself to, to Malibu. It will be great. It will be lovely. Can you do it? Because finally, we value this, the work of the Holy Spirit. To sum up the whole teaching of the New Testament, this is it. Be people of the Spirit. That's it. I know you thought it was about reading your Bible and avoiding sexual immorality. It's not. It's being people of the Spirit. That is the New Testament. Paul could have just written that, and he would have saved himself a lot of time and hassle. Be people of the Spirit. It is fundamental to who we are that we become and we be people of the Spirit. So that is what um, the Alpha Day is going to be like. Go on our website. Click on the thing that says, do you want to come? Click on it and just come. It will be great. Very chilled day. It would be wonderful. You must. I'm forcing you. So, if this is your church, give yourself to it. Not just financially, but in your gifts, in your resources, in your time. Do not, though, collapse your life into church. Do not have so little balance in your life that church is everything. That's not good for you either. But do give to it, financially, with your resources, with your gifts, with your time, but also financially. Good. Let us sing a song of worship. And let us have a moment of silence where we ask God to speak to us.